If you would also take your red hymnal this evening and turn into the back to page 884. 884. I printed the catechism that we hope to consider this evening on the outline. But before I begin, I would like to uh, look back with you at what has been already said about the sacraments. So if you'll notice on question 66, so if you go to question 66, let's remember as we take up now our study of the Lord's Supper, we just completed a study of baptism. Let's remember what a sacrament is. Question 66, sacraments are visible, holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, he might make us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. And then just the question in question 67, are both the word and the sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? And the answer is yes. So let's remember that. Let's keep that in our minds as we take up our study now of the Lord's Supper. We are finished with baptism. Remember, baptism had as part of its purpose to focus our faith on the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But when we come to the Lord's Supper now, it doesn't change. The Lord's Supper is still intended to focus our faith on the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Both the preaching of the Word, both baptism and the Lord's Supper, all have the same general purpose, to focus our faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the difference then? Well, the preaching of the Word is audible. It is a verbal proclamation calling us to fix our faith on Christ. The sacraments are visible. The sacraments are a visible sermon, if I can put it that way. Today we use the language, an object lesson. The sacraments are meant to be seen and to be sensed that way. So in that sense, when we come now to study the Lord's Supper, we want to keep that in our mind. That the purpose of the sacraments both sacraments are the same. So then, we come to our question and answer this evening, which is question 76. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? Now, you'll remember that that's the same question it asked about baptism. How does baptism assure us that we share in Christ's one sacrifice or that we participate in it or that it was for us? So now we're asking the same question, about the Lord's Supper. And the answer given is, in this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. And with this command come these promises. There are two. First, as surely as I see with my eyes. And let's, let's remember that. As I see with my eyes. Notice how visible this is intended to be. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, 
as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. So this sacrament, just like baptism, is meant to fix our faith on Christ. Now it does it with a different picture. Now the picture is not cleansing, washing, but the picture is broken bread and poured out wine. So, the sermon this evening, my friends, intends to fix our eyes uh, on uh, uh, the fact that the Lord's Supper is a meal. This morning we considered a storm. Tonight I want to consider with you a meal and to introduce our study of the Lord's Supper by asking ourselves, what is there specifically in a meal? Why, did, why is this the sign that God gives us? In baptism, we had a cleansing with water, and we talked about that quite extensively, but now a meal. A meal. Well, in our psalm reading this evening, we noted that a meal in those times and in that culture was not simply to relieve hunger. Right? We even have an expression in our own time, right? I'm going to grab a bite to eat. Right? The implication being that you don't have much time, so you're going to grab some food, you're going to throw it down, and you've you got to keep right on moving. You don't even have time to sit down. Well, in the Old Testament culture, my friends, a meal was a sign of intimacy. When you sat down with a, with a friend, sharing that meal together was a symbol, a visible outward symbol that you were embracing this friend in a relationship of love and of friendship. Now, in, in Psalm 41, uh, verse 9, we read some interesting, interesting uh, language. In Psalm 41, David is saying uh, how disappointed he is with his friends. And he says in Psalm 41, verse 9, that he's disappointed even in my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread. He has lifted up his heel against me. You see, that made the betrayal of his friend doubly painful. Not just that he was his friend, but this is the fellow who I sat down and had a meal with. Now, of course, to us, that doesn't really say a lot. We have meals with lots of different people. But in the Old Testament times, David, the psalmist, had had a meal with this person. They had that close, intimate bond of friendship. And then he had lifted up his heel against him and turned away from him. You see, it made it all the more painful. Remember why the Jews were so offended with Jesus. Why were the Jews so offended with Jesus? Because he ate and drank with sinners, with publicans. Right? We might think, well, okay, he, he was friendly. No, but in, in those days and in those times, to have a meal with somebody like that meant that you were in a close bond of friendship. How could Jesus sit and have a meal with sinners? The Jews, with their self-righteous uh, uh, pride, they couldn't handle that, could they? They, just, they were so upset with Jesus for doing that. A meal was not just something that you did to relieve hunger. 
It was a sign of close friendship. Well, now this helps us to understand the Lord's Supper, doesn't it? This helps us to understand why when Jesus instituted this visible sign of the gospel, he gave it to us in the practice of a meal, of eating and drinking together. And so, my friends, the title of the sermon this evening is The Old Testament Roots of the Lord's Supper. Not a terribly exciting title, sorry, but that's the uh, gist of the sermon this evening. The Old Testament Roots of the Lord's Supper. You know, Augustine said, I put that in that first heading there, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. What a clever way, concise way of putting what we hope to do tonight. We hope to find in two Old Testament stories the truth of what a meal is and what it does for us. And we'll find that the truth that we understand in the New Testament was in the Old Testament, concealed. But let's try to pull the cover off tonight and to take a close look at it. So two stories. Two stories tonight. The first one takes us to Genesis 26. Genesis 26. And this is a story of Isaac. Of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac is the least well-known. We say the least about Isaac. But in Genesis chapter 6, we have this very interesting story. We see in Genesis 26 and verse 6 that Isaac has come to live in Gerar. The reason is because there was a famine. You see that in verse 1 of Genesis 26. There was a famine in the land, and so Isaac moves And he goes, and he finally ends up in the land of Gerar. Now, in the land of Gerar, he has to deal with a man named Abimelech. Abimelech being the king, the ruler of that region. Then in Genesis 26, you read about some issues that Isaac had, trying to hide the fact that he was married to Rebekah, and so on and so forth. But drop down to verse 12. Genesis 26 and verse 12. Now, Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. And this causes him a good deal of trouble. Drop down to verse 16. And now we see this trouble finally coming to a head. Genesis 26 and verse 16. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. So Isaac gets shown the door, doesn't he? You can't live here any longer. You're too powerful. We can't have someone like you being around here. Not a nice thing, but notice in verse 17, Isaac's humility. He departs from there and moves. Uh, He says he camps in the valley of Gerar. Evidently, Gerar was a city, and he moved out of the city, but he was still in the region of Gerar. Well, many other things happened, but you can imagine that the relationship between Isaac and Abimelech was not well. It was not good at that point. Isaac was upset with Abimelech. Abimelech was very jealous, envious of Isaac. The relationship has broken down between them. So we're actually surprised to read in verse 26. Genesis 26 and verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him, that is, came to Isaac from Gerar, with his advisor, Ahuzath, 
and Phicol, his the commander of his army. So these are the these are like the top brass, right, of the of the kingdom of Abimelech, right? These are the the big guys. Verse 27, And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me, and have sent me away from you? And they said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be now an oath between us, even between you and us. And the word there is, is, is oath, but think of a covenant. It's the same word that is used elsewhere for a covenant. Here, it's, it's likely a treaty, a treaty of peace. But again, the word there is, is covenant even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done you nothing but good. Interesting. Isaac might dispute that, but at any rate, to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So there's the proposal. Abimelech comes to Isaac with the proposal of a treaty. Let's make this covenant. Let's sign these papers. You're a very powerful man in this region, Maybe Abimelech says under his breath, a little too powerful, right? You're a very powerful person in this region, and we want this covenant to exist, this treaty to be between us, so that there won't be any ill will, no malice between us. Let there just be good relationships between us. We can trade back and forth, but we don't want any trouble. Let's sign this peace treaty between us so that we can live in peace. And again, Isaac must have been quite a humble man. doesn't read that he had any bad memories from what had happened previously. He doesn't hold it against him. And Isaac agrees to sign this treaty. Right? And that's what we have in verse 30. Then Isaac made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And there it is. We have a meal, a feast, not for the purpose of satisfying their hunger, not because Isaac was being polite to his guests. It was not a token of hospitality, I'm not saying that there wasn't anything of hospitality in it, but that was not the goal. The goal of this feast was to ratify the covenant that was between them. Isaac had agreed to it, and now Isaac, in a word, he says, let's have a visible symbol, a visible token that we can remember that this new relationship exists between us. There is this relationship of peace and of good feelings between us. And how are, we going to, how are we going to display that to each other? I gave you my word. Well, Isaac spreads a table. And they sit down and they have a feast. They have a meal together. And that meal is an outward, a visible representation, a celebration, if I may say, of the new relationship that exists between two parties that before were not happy with each other. But now things have changed. There's a new relationship. Let's have this meal together. Verse 30, they ate and drank. And in the morning, they arose early and exchanged oaths. In other words, they signed the paperwork. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And those two words, in peace, so important here, right? Before they were at odds, but now in peace. So there's the first story, my friends. Abimelech and Isaac ratifying the covenant between them by sitting down to this meal. Again, let's remember the title of the sermon, the Old Testament roots of the Lord's Supper. Why a meal? And I think we begin to see now something of how the Lord's Supper grew out of this practice of a meal being used as a symbol of friendship and intimacy between two parties, either two people 
or two groups. Let's move now to the second story. This is what we read together in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus chapter 24, such an interesting chapter this is, my friends. A truly fascinating chapter of Scripture. Do you remember, children, even you will remember what happened in Exodus 20? Right? In Exodus 20, the Israelites came to Mount Sinai. God gave them the Ten Commandments. And in Exodus 21, 22, and 23, God continues to give them His law, further commandments pertaining to all different issues in their life. But then we come to 24, chapter 24. And chapter 24, now it's time to ratify or to seal the covenant. In our own language, we might say it's time to sign the paperwork. How many of you have bought a house? Almost everyone here has bought a house, right? And there, there came that time when you told your realtor, or maybe if you were selling it or buying it yourself, you, you agreed, right? You said over the phone, we'll take it. I'll buy it for that price. You gave your word, right? But that wasn't enough, right? There finally came the closing date, right? I remember the last house we bought, there must have been 25 papers that we had to sign. Before you know it, you get tired of reading them all, right? They just keep coming and coming. And the realtor gives you more and more, and you just keep signing away. But at any rate, it was the closing on this deal. It was ratifying the agreement between buyer and seller. And that's now what's happening here in Exodus 24. God has given his covenant. He's given the terms of the covenant. And Israel now agrees to them. So look with me at verse 3 in Exodus 24. Exodus 24 and verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Right there they give their verbal agreement to the covenant that God has made with them. We see a repetition of that in verse 7. At the end of verse 7, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. But before verse 7, so in verse 4, you see that Moses arises early in the morning. He builds an altar. He builds an altar. And then he sends, in verse 5, these young men to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices on these altars. So blood is shed. Blood is shed. But then Moses and sacrifices. We're familiar with sacrifices, right? Sacrifices make atonement for sin. So we understand that part of it. But then it gets somewhat different in verse 6. Moses takes half of the blood. So again, these animals died on these altars. Some of the blood just poured out on the ground, right, as, as was expected. But some of it Moses captures. He, he, he gets it in a bowl, in basins, and he divides that into two. He divides it into two. And what does he do with one? In verse 6, read very carefully with me here, he sprinkles half of the blood on the altar. Now remember, my friends, that anything that goes on the altar is going up to God. That's God's altar. God was not there physically present with the people of Israel. So how will God put his signature to the covenant that he's making with them in Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, and here ratified in 24? Well, this is how that was represented. Half of this blood that Moses have, he has, he splatters it, he sprinkles it, on the altar, which is now a sign that God accepts this covenant. Now, God made the covenant, but now God gives his assent to it. God agrees to it. You might say that's God putting his signature to that covenant. 
Verse 7, then Moses takes the book of the covenant, remember the book of the covenant in which he had written down all the laws that God wanted Israel to keep. He took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Now verse 8, very important. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. Half of the blood is still remaining. Remember, half of it went on the altar, but now half of it Moses retains in the bowl and he slings that on the people. Now it's possible that he, he, he took the blood and poured it out on those 12 pillars that he had built. Remember, that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. That's possible. But either way, in some way, a shape or form, he takes that altar and he, he, he sprinkles that blood on the people. Which is now, again, it's as if now the children of Israel are putting their name to the covenant. They're signing that they agree to the covenant. And notice, my friends, what they're signing in blood. The covenant is ratified in blood. Now, some of you will remember the sermon we preached on Genesis 15. Remember where the two animals were divided and, the, uh, and, and God walked through the, the middle of those pieces signifying that if God should break this covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to him? You have a similar meaning here that when this blood is scattered both on the altar and on the people, the meaning of that is that if we break this covenant, may our blood be poured out like this blood here that is now being sprinkled upon us. So that blood sprinkling is an oath that Israel is taking to keep the covenant. And then, my friends, we continue in verse 9. Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, as clear as the sky itself. Now, my friends, I ask you tonight to put yourself in the shoes of those 70 elders. Because just prior in this verse, you'll remember that God had said, Moses, you come near to the Lord, but the elders may not come near. My friends, you can't come close to God. God will strike you down because we're sinful people. And those elders knew very well that if they came into the presence of a holy God, they were as good as dead. And so I ask you tonight to put yourself in their shoes as they walk closer and closer up that mountain. And as they see this glory cloud of God, which is represented here in this verse as a pavement of sapphire. In other words, it's a brilliant blaze of glory. And they come closer and closer to it. And I can imagine, my friends, that their hearts must have been beating. And their minds must have been in great anguish, knowing that if they come near to the holy God, they are going to be struck down the second they come into his presence. But the wonder of it all, my friends, is in verse 11. Yet he did not stretch out his hand against the nobles of the sons of Israel. He did not do that. In some mysterious way, my friends, this is the greatest wonder of this chapter. I hope you sense something of it tonight that God did not stretch out his hand and strike them dead and turn them into hell immediately. Would that have been just? Absolutely. But God does not do that. 
And the most astounding words, my friends, in this text, at the end of verse 11, and they beheld God, and they ate and drank. That means, my friends, that on that mountain, God spread a table. God spread a table. And he asked the elders of Israel, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, to come and to sit at this table. And they ate and drank. When God could justly have struck them down, and that's fully what the elders would have expected. You know that it was very much a, 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 a truth in the Old Testament times that no one could see God and live. But my friends, in verse 11, we are told, and they beheld God, or at least this, this glory cloud that represented God, and they ate and drank. My friends, that's the second story I give you this evening. What an incredible thing it is that the elders come into the presence of God and they are not destroyed. But God ratifies the covenant in the same way that Abimelech and Isaac ratified the covenant by bringing the covenant partners to a table and eating and drinking together. Now, of course, we know that this was not eating and drinking to resolve hunger because God has no hunger. But this is clearly a, a meal that ratified and established the covenant between them. Now, my friends, we come to the Lord's Supper. And I see three things here that we can learn from these two stories. First, the Lord's Supper recognizes that all is not well between us and God. Just as there was tension and conflict between Abimelech and Isaac, in the same way between a holy God and a sinful, guilty person, there is no friendship there. That in the first place. And my friends, if ever we are going to appreciate the Lord's Supper, we have to begin here. We have to begin here and to own the fact that we are sinful and guilty before God. In the second place, the Lord's Supper teaches us that God comes with an overture. He comes with a covenant. Just as Abimelech came to Isaac with this overture of peace, with this covenant, so God comes to us in the gospel with a covenant. Do you remember what Jesus said when he first instituted the Lord's Supper? What did he say? He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Why did he say that? Well, my friends, because the old covenant was instituted with blood. The new covenant is also instituted with blood, with Jesus' blood. Rightfully, it could have been our blood, our death. But in the new covenant, Jesus institutes. He institutes a new covenant in his blood. And this we see from Exodus 24, especially. That was the ratification of the old covenant with blood. But now we see in the Lord's Supper is also ratified with blood. And in the third place, the Lord's Supper teaches us to accept the terms of this covenant by sitting down to a meal with God. Our eating, our participating in the Lord's Supper is, is as it were, us stretching forth our hand and signing our name to the covenant that God brings to us. We don't add anything else to it. Again, I gave you a sermon on the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But in the New Covenant, it is all finished. 
And we only come to sit down at the table and to enjoy its benefits. Our eating ratifies the covenant between us and God. My friends, I want to hurry to these points of application. In the first place, I ask you to consider, dear friends, God's overture. God's coming to us with a covenant. Because every time we have in this congregation the Lord's Supper announced, the same thing takes place. God's overture, right? His covenant promise goes forth to the congregation. And God comes, just as Abimelech came to Isaac with an overture of peace. Now God comes and he spreads that table in the midst of the congregation. He spreads it before us. And the call goes out. The call goes out. Here's a covenant. Ordered in every way. Perfectly complete. Here is a finished work. Not calling for your blood. But ratified on the shedding of Christ's blood. For you. There goes, my friends, that wonderful overture. And the question then for you this evening, my dear friends. A question for you. Every time the Lord's Supper is offered and instituted in this congregation and tonight, are you willing to be saved on these terms? That's the covenant that God sets before you. And the obvious question then that comes to us as we sit in our pews and as we see the table being prepared that God now comes to us with this covenant, this new covenant in the blood of Christ. And he says, are you willing to be saved on these terms? Are you willing to be saved in a way where you have to own your own sin and guilt? Where you have to own the justice of God in condemning you for that sin? But that God now says, I will bring my wrath down upon my son. His blood will be shed. And your guilt will be removed by his atoning sacrifice. Now on those terms, God says, I invite you to come and to sit at this table. That's what we read in Revelation 3. That was our call to worship. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Why is it so difficult to open that door, my friends? Because by opening that door, by sitting down at a table with Jesus, we acknowledge that we in ourselves are utterly lost and sinful. And that doesn't come easy to a proud person, does it? That does not come easy to me. It does not come easy to any human person. But the work of the Spirit of God, my friends, is to convict you of that sin and to bring you to that place in your life where you'll say, yes, I deserve to be destroyed on account of my sin. But tonight, as the hymn says, I lay my sins on Jesus. We're not having the Lord's Supper this evening, but it will come back around again, won't it? And God's overture, his covenant, 
will go forth once again. And for all those in the congregation who are willing to own their guilt and their sinful condition, God pulls out a chair for you. And he says, sit at this table and let's ratify the covenant between us. The old Puritan theologians actually used to use that term to close with God on the terms of the covenant. You know, my friends, in one sense, when the Lord's Supper is is served in a congregation, we even lose our status as believers. We even lay aside the fact that we're a converted person. When that call goes forth for the Lord's Supper, then we're nothing more than just sinners, guilty sinners. And we need what is represented on that table. We need it. We must have it. Or we're lost forever. And so we don't come to the Lord's Supper professing to be a strong Christian, to professing to be a Christian for many years in my life. My friends, if we approach the table of the Lord under any other circumstances, then the fact that I'm just a lost sinner, I need the blood of Christ, I need that new covenant, or I'm lost forever. What a beautiful thing the Lord's Supper is for such a sinner, for such a one who's willing to confess it. What a blessed overture that is for sinners. My friends, in the second place, we see the amazing grace of God in the Lord's Supper. What are those terms that God holds out to us in the Lord's Supper? Well, we said that the blood will be entirely Christ's blood, his death in place of ours. But when we go back to the catechism, and I know we haven't explained this yet, from the scripture in future sermons, we hope to do that. But notice what it says here in question 76, that there are two blessings that come along with the command to eat the bread and to drink the cup. The first one is, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. I wonder, congregation, if you remember what were the blessings that God brings us in the new covenant. I know some of you weren't here for those sermons, but for those of you who were here, remember that the blessing of the new covenant was past sins forgotten, future obedience ensured. Do you remember that? Well, what's this first blessing according to the catechism that is given us? His body was offered and broken for me, and his blood poured out for me on the cross. That speaks of atonement. That speaks of past sins forgotten, past sins forgiven, because Christ took the guilt that we have and took it away. And so our past sins are forgiven. But remember, the other blessing of the new covenant was future obedience ensured. And what is the second place? It says here, As surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and tastes with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life. As we walk along the path of life in this constant struggle against indwelling sin, God comes and he nourishes and he refreshes us so that we may continue that struggle. Future obedience ensured. 
That's why Christ said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Remember the blessings of the new covenant. Past sins forgotten. Future obedience ensured. And now my last point of application. At the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, we look forward. We look forward, my friends, to the Last Supper. The Great Supper. Blessed are those, says Jesus Christ, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That speaks to us of another supper, my friends. Another meal. Another meal that is future for God's people. That's not a meal, my friends, where there's blood or the symbols of broken body and poured out blood on the table. But that is a marriage supper, my friends, where we celebrate the victory of the Lamb of God. This morning we talked about that, didn't we? When we asked if 2024 might be the last year that we are alive on this earth. And especially at the end of the year, my friends, we, we want to come and think about the end of our own life. We don't want to dismiss that thought. We want to look that fact in the face. And our text this morning preaches to us such a glorious message, my friends, that when we come to that dying hour, when we come to that last day on earth, there our Lord Jesus Christ will once again, as he has done many times in this life already, but there he will spread another feast for us. He will give us pure white garments, as it also says in the book of Revelation, to join and to sit down with him at a feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb, celebrating the marriage, again another covenant, between God and his people. That's why, my friends, this sermon this evening speaks to us also about the future. That last enemy can look so foreboding in our life. It can bring such fear into our minds, even darkness. Death is the last enemy, my friends. But in this evening, we have preached to us this blessed marriage supper of the Lamb. And death is the doorway that brings us out of this life and into that feast. Maybe tonight you can look at death a little differently than what the devil often forces into our minds and tries to impress upon us. That when a loved one dies, that when we die, and if we are a believer in Jesus, we go to another feast. A feast of unparalleled beauty, my friends, and of unparalleled joy. I wish I could represent it to you as, I could, as it ought to be represented. But this, my friends, is something to build up our hope and our expectation. That death, yes, it's an enemy, but it's also an entrance into eternal life. So many of the people that used to sit in these benches have passed on before us. And one day we go on to join them. Blessed are those, happy are those, my friends, who sat in this life at that table with Christ. 
and took refuge in his blood and in his covenant. Because they have hope, a certain hope, of sitting with Christ at that last supper in glory forever and forever. My friends, may the Lord build up that hope within us so that we live as those who have a place at that table. May God bless it for his name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you this evening. We are astonished, O Lord, that these 70 elders weren't struck down immediately when they entered into your presence. Astonished, O Lord, that you would sit down with them and eat and drink. Lord, we are astonished at your amazing grace that you would sit down and eat with us who have committed enough sin in an hour that you could justly condemn us to hell forever. Lord, we are astonished that you give us this this unbelievable hope that in the world to come we will again sit down at the Last Supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb, a supper that will never have an ending, a supper where you are the host and where we will be clothed in pure white linen garments. Lord, grant that as we live our life in this world, we might have an earnest desire and longing for that great day. And that all the troubles and pain, the storms that we experience in this life, would lead us to cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, yea, come quickly. Lord, remember us then, young and old, this evening, and fill our hearts with joy and gladness at this glorious salvation that you have revealed to us. Lord, please bless us and keep us then as we pass out of the old year and into the new year. And Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now on the red hymnal to number 476. 476, It Is Well With My Soul. We'll sing the four verses of this hymn. We hope to sing the third verse, a cappella, so be ready for that. A cappella, verse 3. But we'll sing verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Let's sing the four verses of 476 in the red hymnal.
receive the blessing of the Lord. Go in peace. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.